if you want to be like a cat man, crisper that up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like yeah. more power to you. That's your choice. My only point is I think that people are trying to push a level of flexibility and openness on the typical American, typical human, where it's like, no, we're, most of us are pretty much template people. Right. Like there's a template, you know, we, we age, we marry, we have children, you know, right. it's like the Indian system. It's like you're, you know, you're a young man, you're a householder, and then you're, you retire and you go into the forest to contemplate, stuff like that. All right, everybody, what's going on? This is the Other Life Podcast. I'm Justin Murphy. I have an excellent episode for you this week. This week's episode is with Razib Khan. Razib is a Bangladeshi-American geneticist and writer. He's also a friend of mine. He's probably the smartest guy I know when it comes to genetics, by far, probably. And he's also just chill and funny uh, to hang out with and talk with. So you're really going to like this one. He actually writes the number one substack in the science category. So... He's a really thoughtful guy, and he's also a, quite a successful independent intellectual. He's been blogging since the early 2000s, and now he's killing it on Substack. So we have an, a fascinating, wide-ranging discussion, mostly about genetics and politics, and then we also talk a little bit about the landscape for independent intellectuals, as you know, a common theme on this podcast. So this is awesome. Yeah, we talk about whether or not you know Genghis Khan was good, actually. We talk about CRISPR gene editing technology and whether or not we're going to be able to jack up our intelligence and our and our our testosterone and things like this. And when you're going to be able to do that, what that's going to look like. We talk about the caste system in America. We talk about genetically engineered bioweapons and so much more. So I hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy this podcast, please check out Razib's Substack. Like I said, he's crushing it on Substack. His Substack is called Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning, and you can find that at razib.substack.com. If you subscribe, tell him that I sent you. All right, that's all for now. By way of introduction, let's get on to the show. Oh, yeah, I almost forgot. This episode is sponsored by IndieThinkers.org. IndieThinkers is a private membership community dedicated to independent intellectuals, intellectuals working outside of institutions and on the Internet instead. So if that describes you, you should check it out. It's just IndieThinkers.org, and there's a link in the show notes. You can request an invitation. All right. All right, Razib, thanks for joining me today. What's up? <laughs> I have an action-packed agenda for us today. We're going to be talking about everything from gene editing, yeah, CRISPR. Yeah, sounds like a kitchen appliance, but it's not. Maybe one day it soon will be. Yeah, we're going to talk about the step. We're going to talk about okay. We're going to talk about two step, three step, four step, <laughs> <laughs> genetic bioweapons. We're going to talk about American demography and genetics. I'm going to ask you some questions you might not be expecting some, all right some challenging questions yeah. well i mean let me let me tell the tell the people out there um you did not give me the questions ahead of time <laughs> which some people do and some people don't so i did not because i know you're smart enough to handle them and okay. i and i know it'd be more fun and more interesting to yeah. put you on the spot okay, a little that's bit fair, that's fair <laughs> all right so uh you wrote in a recent newsletter on your Substack that everything human makes more sense if you understand the step so i thought we'd start with the step for my listeners who probably know a little bit about the step, they probably know yeah. about Genghis Khan. They know the basic contours of that story. Yeah. What is the most interesting or important aspect of the step that people need to know today that they don't currently know? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of interesting aspects. I think at the high level, um, in the generality, I think the important thing that I need to know about the step is it's not just a destructive or reactive force. It was actually a creative force. So if you think about it from a Marxist pers perspective, there was a dialectic between the steppe and the settled. 
and this created a synthesis and we are the product of the synthesis but we tend to not think of it that way because the people on the step are an oral culture and we are a written culture and guess who gets to write the histories the people who are the written culture and so we know the roman historians we know what they thought of the huns but we don't know what the huns thought of the romans you know um we know obviously what uh you know the chinese and the muslims thought of the mongols we don't know as much what the mongols thought of them although we know some we know some of the mongols perspective they're close enough and they adopted literacy and so we're starting to see in this late period 1200 ad and later of the step kind of at the end of the step period uh what they thought and how they viewed the world and it kind of gives us a sense i think of uh the huns the scythians all these other groups that are kind of considered fearsome um and barbaric which they were uh but we never actually hear their voice their caricatures you know and there are people who are you know the descendants of the step well before history so the indo-europeans um you know both of us are of quote indo-european heritage um i did a back of the envelope and i estimate about 850 million human beings alive today um would be yamnaya if you just do the weighting of the genomic fractions. So this is a step population probably numbered on the order of 100,000 generously 5,000 years ago, the ancestor of probably the Indo-European languages today. And, you know, contributes around like 50% of the ancestry in Northern Europe, 30% in Southern Europe, 15% in India. Pretty soon it starts adding up. So, um, And why is the genetic footprint so large for these step groups? Because it's raining men. It's uh, a lot of people. Well, no, no, no. A lot of guys. Ah. A lot of guys. A highly, probably a polygamous environment. And so there's a site. Um, so I, on my podcast, uh, people should check out Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Um, you know, I do a, a two-week delay for the non-subscribers so everyone can access that. Uh, Christian Christiansen, uh, a Danish archaeologist, has done extensive work on this. Not just him, though. Um, basically, what you see in Northern Europe is a situation where there are men from the outside, from the steppe, they tend to come in paternal lineage groups, so all the men are related, so they're a band of brothers, and they um, acquire women from the local populations, and the paternal lineages of the local populations disappear. So you can connect the dots how that might have happened. There are some cases where we've caught violence in action, but uh, historically... Uh, men do not stop reproducing of their own will. Okay, but there have been many groups and clans and tribes made of many men in the past, right? So what was unique? Yeah, so I think what was unique was that, um, so the explanation, and I, I, I think I did put this, actually, I haven't gotten to this point. So my step series is probably going to run a year, I'm going to be honest. Um, I've made it to 2,500 BC <laughs> um, after 20,000 some words. So, um you know, when Genghis Khan was conquering northern China, uh, he wanted to drive the peasants off, so basically kill them all, and turn it into pasture land. And his advisor, um, you know, his Katai advisor, and the Katai were a formerly step group that had been uh, settled in China, said, you will make more money, you will be richer if you let the peasants live and extract taxes out of them. So this is the standard thing. You're a, a guy on a horse, you think it's easier and funner to extract and extort wealth out of settled populations, which in the aggregate are far more wealthy. You know, you as an economist, um, political scientist know how that works. It's just the numbers, aggregate wealth, uh, rather than being a shepherd, 
um, or, you know, a cattle herder. I don't think the Indo-Europeans had this ideology. I don't think um, what Samuel Borgia, my friend Samuel Borgia, he has the idea of social technology. I don't think they had the social technology of conquest, conquest, co-option, and uh, subjugation. I think that they thought more like, to be frank, animals. Like, this is land. We take this land. And we raise cattle on the land. Right. So a lot of people think of the Mongols as this very uncivilized group. But in a way, what you're saying is that there was something uniquely civilized about, oh, mm-hmm. we don't actually have to kill everyone. We can actually let them live. Yeah. It's kind of the seeds of a cooperative uh, modus vivendi. Yeah. And so when I talked about the dialectical synthesis earlier, this is what I'm talking about. The steppe and the settled influenced each other. You can't understand the steppe without understanding settled civilizations. And you can't understand settled civilizations without understanding the step. And so the first step of the step, the first stage of the step settled interaction is the Indo-European migrations 5,000, 4,000 years ago, depending on where you're talking about. And these migrations involved, uh, you know, frankly, extermination and absorption. And the Indo-Europeans themselves forgot who they were. So if you if you talk to um, if, when the Romans, the Romans themselves, um, they don't remember that they're from the steppe. The people in India don't remember that they're from the steppe. Later, later groups of steppe people do remember because they had cavalry, um, they had communication networks. Uh, the Mongol communication networks, the Pax Mongolica, went from Hungary all the way to China without you know any customs duties. Like It was an understood, the Golden Family, the family of the Mongols ruled this whole territory. They had the Yasa, they had their law. So we don't have written records of the Indo-Europeans. We do know that there are people that are buried in the Altai in Western Mongolia who are closely related to people that are buried in Hungary. So we know that they went all over the place, but they might not have had like the modern ideology and system of communication across these vast territories. So the Mongols had a non-trivial kind of genetic impact on Western Europe as well. Uh, more, more, let's say, East Central. And it's very small. So it's on the order of, let's just say, so in in Central Asia, it's not trivial at all. Like let's say like five to ten percent, something in that range. Okay, and then and this what Central Asia is pretty lightly populated. In Europe itself, probably like less than a percent. Okay. There's some groups like Litvak, Litvak Tatars, like um the actor Charles Bronson was half Litvak Tatar, really, which is why he could play Native Americans because he looked a little because he was Asiatic, right? Um, the Indo-Europeans, on the other hand, their first generations in Northern Europe, uh, they're seventy five percent of the population all of a sudden. Okay. So instead of a conquering elite on top, they basically just push the local people aside. Kind of more like um, the Native American white settler model in the United States. Okay, fascinating. So at a, at a high level, are there any other key points about the step that you think contemporary Westerners should know about that they don't currently know about. I remember a few years ago I read the the Jack Weatherford book. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which called... is his books are basically Genghis Khan was good actually. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> it. And I remember one of the takeaways from that book was basically, if I recall the argument correctly, is that in a way Genghis Khan paved the way for modern governments because he centralized the clans. I think it was or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. So his his system was pretty rationalized. I mean, they're not look if they if. It, it, they're not like supermen. Um, they had to have organization and skill to do what they did, uh, which is repeatedly conquer settled societies. Okay, so they had to have internal organization in terms of like, okay, what do people need to know? Um, I think what people need to know is the step, the Eurasian step is kind of like 
the ocean. It's a connection network. It's really easy to connect across this network. Um, the Mongols had their own Pony Express type system. And, you know, even 5,000 years ago, I mean, let's talk 4,000 years ago, um, the light war chariot was invented probably in northern Kazakhstan among the Sintashta people, the Andernova Horizon, and it shows up all across Eurasia within the next, say, one to 500 years. Like, this light war chariot is clearly the prototype of the Shang Dynasty war chariot around 1300 BCE, right? And this is obviously from the steppe. There are Iranian influences in the early Mongols uh, in terms of the burial structures, um, and cultural influences, there are probably Iranians in the Ordos region of northern China. Um, you know, the when you see the Battle of Kadesh, where the Hittites versus the Egyptians, those are light war chariots from the steppe. There's a woman who was buried in a well in Syria. I think she dates to like 1450 BC. They call her the woman in the well. She was, or she wasn't buried. She was thrown down the well. Her genetic ancestry is clearly exactly the same as people in Kazakhstan at that period. So how much do you agree with the argument that the Mongols were good, actually. <laughs> this is awkward because my last name's Khan. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're biased. Um, no, I'm not descended from I know what my Y chromosome is. Um, this is a really, I mean, I don't want to be glib about this. Because um, they were brutal. Well, they caught, I mean, so it's pretty clear there was climate change due to the number of people killed in central Eurasia because there was reforestation. So they were green. Genghis Khan was an environmentalist. He was the first, let's just say the Mongols were the first deep ecologists, <laughs> you know? Wow. Um, Wait, what do you mean by that? So deep ecology is the idea that- No, I know that. Yeah. I mean, unpack what you were saying about forestation. Uh, so many people died that the forest grew back. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like okay. there is, there is the suggestion that they caused global cooling, but it wasn't a conscious. Game <laughs> no, plan, right? okay, yeah. <laughs> they actually didn't want the people to. So the Mongols used, as you know from the Weatherford books, you know they used terror and genocide as an instrument. That wasn't their ends. Their ends was to be rich. Although Genghis Khan did tell his sons, like, be careful of getting too soft. You know, um, were they actually good? I would say no. I'm gonna have to be honest. Um, you know. Destroying Baghdad, uh, what they did. I mean, Iran didn't recover until the 20th century, arguably, from the Mongol conquest of the destruction of their infrastructure. The Quanat system, um, that took a while. They didn't have, like, too much of an impact on Europe, but there is an argument that Russian autocracy, which I think is plausible, I think it's probably correct, is actually modeled on and a reaction to the Tatar yoke of the Mongols. So the Russian czars... Uh, they claim to be heirs of the Roman emperors, the East Roman emperors. But to be entirely frank, I think they are the heirs of, you know, the Mongol Khans. Hmm. Um, the Prince of Moscovy achieved his, of the Danilovich lineage, achieved his prominence through the um, patronage and support given by the Tatar Khan, by the Mongol Khan of the Golden Horde. And so... I don't think Russian author. I mean, I'm just not into authoritarian. I mean, I'm not. Look, I'm not like super anti mole bug or anything like that. You know, I'm not like a naive lib here. But I mean, all things equal, authoritarianism is not good, and so that was bad. I do think they did integrate the world system. And so, if you read a book called, I think it's called like The Pride and the Plenty, but it's about like how the world economic system really you can date it to the Mongol period. That's when it really starts the integrated globalized system where. You know, China was just a rumor before that to most of Europe, you know. But then you had, like, people like Marco Polo. I do think he went to China. There are people like Marco Polo who actually went to China and came back regularly. 
starting during that period. And so I think um, the Mongol conquests are um, kind of the preamble to the Age of Discovery, which is a European way of looking at it. But the Age of Discovery, starting the 16th century, um, the whole world island, Africa, Eurasia, everything, you know, they kind of touched it. I mean, they didn't get into Africa because they were defeated in Syria, but they would have, you know. Okay. So I think it's on the whole probably bad, but it's such a mixed bag yeah. that it's hard to say. Fascinating. Excellent answer, though. So let's talk a little bit about CRISPR. So this is one of the most interesting technologies that's rapidly advancing right now. It's yeah. becoming cheaper, more accurate, and it's basically gene editing is what we're talking about. Yeah. So let's – I want to know from you, since you know a lot about this, I, I'm curious – you know, what what is in your future look like specifically in terms of like, I'm, am I going to soon have yeah. kind of consumer technologies where I'm going to be able to edit my own genes? How soon is that going to come? And yeah, yeah. concretely, what kinds of things am I realistically going to be able to do with that? Yeah. So. Um, so uh, just for the for the viewer listener, um, CRISPR technology is revolutionary. It's really I mean, it's been the science of it has been around for a couple of decades, but really its application to genetic engineering um, that term, that phrase, is less than 10 years old now. It really started in 2012. Um, I saw a sea change among my friends that worked in like bench applied biology within about one to two years where they abandoned all of the other types of clone, uh, genetic engineering technologies they were using. And so previously, there were genetic engineering technologies that were specialized to like this or that. They were good for mice. They were good for plants. Um, it, it was just like clunky. It didn't scale. CRISPR is great because it's cheap, it's easy, it's in a kit. And so there are people, um, I think his name is like, his last name is Zane. There's a guy who like injects himself with CRISPR and does all sorts of things and he sells kits. And so it's gotten that far. Oh, really? Yeah. I got to look him up. That sounds good. Yeah, cool. look him up. But um, I, I've had some Twitter interactions with him. So how is it going to affect you? Um, okay, let's think about it. So it's cheap, it's easy, it's targeted. Obviously, it's going to hit agriculture intensely. Um, so I think like it will increase productivity on the margin in the near future, pretty obviously, um, and immediately. You could imagine something like, okay, like, I don't know. You want a blue banana. <laughs> okay. You know what? And I, I put that idea out there. If anyone wants to market a blue banana, <laughs> just saying, I already had the idea. That was my idea you're taking there. Anyway, just, I just, but I'm saying like, I mean, I can imagine someone like, I like blue bananas, you know? Okay. And so you, you you genetically engineer a banana. It's just a banana, but it has a blue peel. Right. Okay. Now, this is not useful in any way. Right. But it's possible now. Okay. I think you could do something can like that. Can I make that. My, my skin blue? Can you I could. Identify, can I identify as a, as, a, as a blue alien? As a blue man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could. So I, this is actually a question because there's a lot of people that want blue eyes. And I would suggest you just get contacts. <laughs> um, but, like, you can imagine a situation where you could CRISPR – the tissue in your eye so that um, the, the, the melanocytes stop expressing. CRISPR is not great branding. It kind of sounds like you're going to fry your eyeballs out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't recommend this, uh, you know, but. Um, so what other what other knobs can I turn? Like, can I can I jack up my strength? Can I you, can you, I jack up my yes. intelligence? How soon can we in jack theory, up our intelligence? In theory. Um, so 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 the issue with CRISPR, not the issue, the thing with CRISPR is it's genetic engineering, right? You have about 19,000 genes. Okay, you have three billion base pairs of those on the order of, say, 100 million are variable. Um, you know, a lot of them are private to you. And so CRISPR is great because it's cheap, it's targeted, and there are a few off-target effects. Um, off-target effects are mutations, are mistakes. 
and there have been issues and there could be issues with people who get CRISPR gene editing for curing diseases and then they get cancer because cancers are mutations, okay? So it's not without risk. Now, right now, as we are recording, um, they are working, from what I know, on trials of CRISPR cures for things like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, which has been reported in the media. Um, uh, I think amyloidosis, I think like what the science uh, fantasy author Robert Jordan died of, some blood disease. Um, it was actually in the news a couple of days ago. So there are adults with severe illnesses right now that are due to one gene. So I think cystic fibrosis is usually a mutation in CFTR. You usually die in your 40s now, which is way better than dying when you're 10, like a, a century ago. But, I mean, would you want to die in your 40s? No, so solving genetic diseases yeah, is going to be the, in, first, in, the first line In this of, decade, yeah. in the 2020s, I think by the end, so um, I have an acquaintance, um, his name is, well, anyway, um, I have an acquaintance who has a daughter, a, a young daughter, uh, I think less than a year now, who has cystic fibrosis. Uh, I don't know this guy well, but I, I'm close friends with a friend of his, and I just said, honestly, I would not worry about her adulthood. She's never going to be a marathon runner. But they will be able to deliver enough of the fix to her lung tissue that she will have usable lung and she will probably live to a ripe old age. And so will it ever be possible to juice up my intelligence through CRISPR or is that just too complex? It's too many genes. It would be possible, but um, it is a it is not a trivial engineering task. So the issue of juicing up your intelligence is you probably have thousands of positions that you would need to tweak. And so if there's a trivial number of mutations per position, <laughs> but you start multiplying by thousands, the trade-off is going to start kicking in. Meaning, like, I think I'm jacking up my intelligence, but actually I, I just grow a third eyeball or something. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so like, let's assume there's, like, uh, there's there's one error out of a thousand, uh -huh. okay? Um, and you have to fix, like, four mutations within CFTR or whatever, cystic fibrosis, and then you have to deliver it into your tissues, so the delivery problem is actually probably the bigger issue. It's like, how do you get to the tissues with like, I think like they use viral vectors, they use other things, you know? Um, but uh, I think they might use mRNA now. But in any case, um, so how do you get it in? Let's assume you can get it in there. Um, you have like one out of a thousand chance of a mutation. You have cystic fibrosis. You don't really care, okay? Like you want, you want some lung tissue or you're going to die. Okay, one out of a thousand mutation chance is fine. You're probably going to get like, you know, you're going to have like a lot of edits going on in there because you're not just going to like edit one cell unless you want to do some stem cell transplant, which like you could grow your organs at some point in the future, probably a couple of decades. But in any case, um, you're going to have a risk of having some side effects, perhaps cancer late in life. But you know what? You're going to make it to late in life. Right. So it sounds like to solve a very specific, acute and yes. certain problem it will be worth the risks and the costs. Yes. But just trying to increase a general variable that's more desirable, especially if it's complex, is going to uh, make too much risk, too much complexity for not enough of an urgent Yeah, uh, I mean, payoff. right now. Yeah. Right now, but it might not be... It might not be... So from what I understand, your IQ is not average. Um, Me? Personally. Yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, like, it's below if, average. No. no, I'm just saying. If your IQ is, um, like, if you're a very low, if you have a very low IQ child, it might actually be worth it. I'm not gonna lie. Mm. 
because it might be some large effect mutation you want it, you know what i'm saying not necessarily even down syndrome but there could be like big breakages that happen because of mutations during the meiosis process you want to go in there and fix it as soon as possible mm. that that might be easier and better than giving them a drug cuz ultimately you're affecting a biological process but um it might be an issue where you want to go and hit the fetus as soon as possible you do so here here's a scenario you do sequencing really early on we figure out ways to sequence really early in the pregnancy, and um, you know there's a huge effect mutation. You're pro-life. You don't believe in abortion. So what do you do? CRISPR. You just you, you want to bathe the fetus with the cure as soon as possible as the brain is developing. And physically, what are we talking about? Injecting molecules? Like, what are we doing? Yeah, I mean, so I, it's been a while since I've, like, looked at this because, like, these – so the, the hard problem with a lot of this is how do you get it into the cells, right? And so one way that people have traditionally done it is, you know, like, infection with viruses. So they're not, they're not virulent. They don't do anything bad. But the viruses get in there, and they're, they're carrying, um, you know, whatever you are using to snip and cut. You know, mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah, I mean, so you just you got to transfect the cell somehow. You have to get it to the cell or bathe it, you know, with with the with the CRISPR Cas9 molecule. And can, I mean, can you buy this stuff yet or like where do where do you go like, to obtain this stuff? Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean? It's like black there, market. No, black there mar- are people selling CRISPR kits. I don't know like how legal it is. So, um, you know, I mean. Uh, put it you'll, you'll find you in, in 10 years the other life podcast is shilling like iq supplement uh <laughs> products through crispr packs yeah <laughs> it's like you, you could be like this crispr ointment <laughs> makes my skin you know beautiful fascinating okay okay so so here, here's an idea actually skin let me think about this again this is my idea so if someone <laughs> wants to take it but um so your skin gets less and less you your skin ages what i've what i was taught because of mitochondria that mutate over time and don't DNA repair. And so by the end of your lifetime, most of your mitochondria and your cells, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, um, are kind of damaged. I can imagine a situation where you want to fix the mitochondria. You target it with CRISPR. Now, you could have mutations, but mitochondria are already broken. So what's the problem? You know? So you, you fix the mitochondria, all of a sudden you, got, you keep the young skin. Wow. That's just a thought. So you could imagine your skin totally rejuvenating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. If, if, I mean, I don't think it's just the mitochondria, but I was told that, like, the weird, um, like, just like, you know, old as people age, their skin is less supple. Right. And I was told that that was because the cells um, have a lot of broken mitochondria. And so they're just, they don't produce the same type of energy. They don't DNA repair in the same way, all this stuff. And so, like, let's say that you can fix these mutations in your skins. You know, now imagine that you only have enough ointment just for your arm. You could have like a really nice arm, but (laughs) the rest of your body is. I mean, I think that as I approach the age of natural death, I would become less uh, risk averse. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly by the end of your life. Well, you know, by the end of your life, you do all sorts of people do all sorts of crazy things for those extra six months. Right. You know, and I can imagine a scenario where. You extend your life six months, but you're probably going to die. But, you know, that's better than you have six months to do your, you know, okay. take care of your affairs. I mean, that's what a lot of cancer treatment is about. It's about extending life. It's not about saving your life. So something that you referred to was genotyping. 
And so this would be a kind of preliminary step in this process yeah. of basically just kind of downloading the genomic data. Yeah, reading that, it. That's what you mean, right? And tell me about the technological stack for doing that. What what? How do you do that concretely? Yeah, there's there's several different. Um, so genotyping on an array is a chip. It's a chip that you put the DNA on after it's been amplified. So 23andMe, these companies, um, you get the cheek cell. The cheek cells are sent to the lab. The lab amp PCR amplifies it, produces a lot of amplified DNA, and the DNA is put on the chip. And, uh, you know, I don't remember the technology now, but basically they read the positions on the chip aligned to positions in your genome, and they return a state. They return a signal state, okay? And so, you know, the 23andMe has a 650,000 position chip out of your 3 billion base pairs and your 100, out of like, you know, the 10 million common polymorphisms, right? Um, so genotype, that's genotyping. Um, another thing you do, uh, which is going to be more and more common and probably ubiquitous in 10 years, you just read out the whole genome as a sequence. And so the way that works is they're reading out reads. Um, and so you have all these stacked reads that come out and you use a computer to like reconstruct and assemble the single. And that's more data. It's 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 uh, not just more data. It is the complete data. So that's the superior way of doing it. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, genotyping and, is reduced representation of the data. And how many bytes is that? Um, so the aligned, like the cleaned up aligned, um, genotype uncompressed, uh, or sequence, I think it's about three gigabytes. Okay. So you can do this on consumer computer. Yeah. So I, I have my, my, I see, I had my son see my, um, older son sequence before he was born. Right. And he, he went, he was, it was on 10 X, which meant that, um, I sampled his genome 10 times. Normally for medical, you do it 30. So you read the genome 30 times because there's errors each time. And so you want to, like, each position, you want to sample, like, 30 times, okay? And so um, I don't remember. It was, like, so like it wasn't, like, 400 gigs. It might have been, like, 200 gigabytes of, like, the, the raw read. And then I, like, pull that down, and, you know, eventually you went down to three. And how did you do it? Did you just ask a doctor to extract a sample, or? Well, they can they can Google MIT Tech Review, Razib Khan. No, I've read about it, yeah. but I'm, do you go into that kind of detail concretely about how – like, what were the steps you took to actually get that? Uh, the steps that I took was basically we told the doctor what to do, and the doctor did it, and then we bullied the laboratory to get the DNA back. Because this is this was not done, and it still is not done. Mm. Um, and the laboratory meaning, like, you just find a DNA laboratory? Well, so the, the people who did the amplification and got the DNA, they did not want to return the raw DNA to us. Um, because never... that's weird. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. And so I basically went to Twitter and I said, like, what's up with this? Why aren't they giving me back my genetic material? And Rebecca Sklute was like, well, you know, that's really bad. And so then they called her and like, we'll give you back the genetic material. <laughs> and so what did the doctor have to do? Is it like a, a, a so injection? Is it a So what the doctor did or... was a Coriana villi sampling, which is actually um, like a little bit of tissue off the placenta in utero. Um, they do that for certain types of genotyping. They kind of stopped doing that. And this is while your wife is pregnant? Yes. Okay. They kind of stopped doing that. Now what they're doing is... They actually take um, there's fetal cells, uh, fetal DNA in your in your wife's blood, and that's how they do the non-invasive prenatal testing for stuff like Down syndrome. And in the future, they will be able to sequence the fetus just by a blood draw from the. I mean, right now, again, like there's not that many cells in there. So I think this is super interesting, and I think a lot of people listening to this or watching this might actually be interested in doing this for, for themselves. So before we move on, I wonder if we could zero in even more concretely, like literally what would the words be if you went to your doctor and you have a pregnant wife sure. and you wanted to do what you did? What would you say to the doctor? 
Um, I would say that I want to figure out a way to do whole genome sequencing on the fetus. Um, and basically, um, we want to do a blood draw and then talk to the laboratory about getting the amplified DNA back. Uh, because right now, there's no pipeline that I know of where it goes from amplified DNA to like they do a whole genome sequencing. So to send the bodily fluids to the lab, you need the doctor to do that? Or yes, you so do you need... can't do that yourself? Not really. I mean, you can kind of try to bully the lab. It's it's a gray land because it's asked so, so little. They, they want the doctor to approve on it. Okay. And we kind of had to... We kind of had to bully the doctor and the genetic counselor. Now, most people do not have a geneticist in the family. Uh, so, you know, it really helped that I knew my stuff. Well, that's what this podcast is here for. Now yeah. I, now everyone has what? The geneticist in the family. Yeah, but I mean, that you, you need to, like, know your stuff and go to them, and they know that you know what you want. Okay. So they'll feel comfortable signing off because they don't really know. Gotcha. Gotcha. And when the lab gives you results, they're basically giving you a, a data file. Is that right? Yeah, they're giving you a data file. Uh, what you want, because they're not going to do sequencing. They might not be able to do sequencing. It depends. Uh, there's some issues with, like, you need to sample tissue, do you get sulfury. Um, what you need is they get the DNA of the fetus somehow. Um, with, with, with the Down syndrome prenatal testing, I don't think they need to do too much because what they're looking for are, um, you know, chromosomal abnormalities. And so those can be pretty coarse, you know, but what you need is like figure out a way if they can get the, the amplified DNA. Okay. And that's not, that's not trivial with a, with a blood draw. It's much easier if they did amnio or something like that, but they don't do that too much anymore because, um, there's, there might be some risk of miscarriage. I, those studies are kind of crappy. There's just not enough good sample to know. Okay. Um, but a lot of it is just going straight to the blood draw now. And, uh, you know, I, we will have a situation in the next decade where, you can get a blood draw from your wife early in pregnancy, and they will be able to sequence the fetus. Okay. Interesting. And so when you get that data file from the lab, what are the top questions in your mind? Like, what are you looking for? And what do you think average people, especially if they're having children, what what, what should they most be yeah. looking for? The, the number one thing is you want to look for um, known mutations associated with congenital diseases. Uh, just to know ahead of time, um, a lot of people will want to have abortion. So the prenatal the, the non-invasive prenatal testing means that in the United States today, there's far fewer children with Down syndrome than there would be because most people choose to abort. Now, if you're a 20-something, they might not automatically offer it to you. And if you don't ask, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, last I checked, and this has been a couple of years, if you're 35 and above, insurance automatically covers it and they bring it up with you. Um, so, and they just kind of assume you will abort, to be frank. I had a friend who... You know, he's he's pro-life, and uh, the doctor was a little surprised, I think, that they did not. Um, right. And so you're – okay, so you're looking for genetic diseases, basically. That's the first thing you want to look for. Um, if everything comes back clean, like you could – like I think Prometheus still works. Like there are these, like, tools you can look for risks. If everything looks good, okay, then you want to predict traits. So, for example, um, I knew my son was going to be uh, – a little lighter haired, a little darker skinned, and like this is weird, but he's gonna have dry earwax, which he does. You know, I just, I just, I, I could just like look at traits of interest, you know. And how much domain expertise in genetics does one have to do to execute those analyses on the computer? Like, is this something you can Google? Like, what the R code for predicting? Uh... Yeah. So Promethease, the disease part, there's a lot of modules out there. 
for you to just like take the raw data and let it run and then it pops out a list rank ordered by odds ratio and base rates okay um the characteristics no there's not much stuff out there because I mean, maybe we could talk about starting a company doing that, you know, <laughs> um, because uh, people don't people haven't had the data. They haven't thought about it. I mean, what are people interested in? Are they interested in eye color? Are they interested in, you know, how much they sweat? I don't know. You know, right. people haven't thought about that because they're so focused on disease. Well, I think personality would be most interesting, right? People yeah, you could that. you could do some predictions of how robust they are on the individual level is a little off. I mean, you re- have you read Plowman's book? No. Okay, so basically, uh, genomic prediction of stuff like intelligence is not trivial, but it's really noisy. And so what I would be curious about would be if the offspring is predicted to be like three standard deviations above or below the norm, which is going to be rare. But when that happens, that's a significant prediction, and you need to take take note of it. Right. Um, there are going to be cases where you're like, okay, this, this kid is definitely going to be a smart. <laughs> this kid's going to be a psychopath. Yeah. You know, there, there are going to be cases where you see, like, risk factors for various things due to mutations. So um, autism, um, schizophrenia, these are highly heritable, about, like, 70 to 80% heritable, which means that that's the proportion of variance in the population due to genes. And so I do think that people are going to be profiling their offspring ahead of time because these have environmental interactions, all these things. Um, schizophrenia gets, quote, triggered, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I want to know. I mean, I don't know because... We haven't had the technology yet for my children, and they seem fine. But, um, you know, if you have a family history of these sorts of things, I think people will want to know. I think people will do gene sequencing and screening. I think they will do pre-implantation diagnosis because having a child with schizophrenia or autism, um, it's not the end of the world, but it's difficult. Right. So you, you would suggest using something like Prometheus, which is a tool that lets you do this. Doing the raw analyses in something like R, that's probably above most people's pay grade. Like you have to. Yeah, I think you could do it, but most people can't do it. But you're saying I could. I think so. You if could. you do have expertise with data, if you're science, a data scientist, you if you're a data scientist grade person, you can do it. Um, the only thing is, like, I would suggest that, like, you know, I mean, these are three gigabyte files when they're cleaned down, so uh, mm-hmm. you're gonna have to do some data munging and yeah, and paring down. But once you get it to that stage, yeah, that's it's. It, what is it? It's it's a text file with a string. Mm-hmm. With with a, well, with two strings actually, but whatever they're just strings. Mm-hmm. You know how to manipulate strings. Yeah, it's fa- a big strings. It's fascinating. Probably one of the most interesting files on your computer. <laughs> you know your your yeah. your child's uh, yeah, and I do data. yeah, and I do have it. I do have it in encrypted on a cloud somewhere. I'm not going to say what, but but yeah. yeah, and like I have my own sequence. You can Google Recipecon genotype. You can pull down my genotypes and my VCF file, which is from my whole genome fascinating like mine is public and so do you predict that sometime soon you'll be able to use that data to make a clone of your child if you wanted to i mean yeah <laughs> if i wanted to i'm, I'm thinking or like how much or if your child wanted to i guess yeah, it'd be up like, to them because no, there are going to be rich people who are going to clone themselves within the next 10 to 20 years within 10 to 20 years yes i believe so wow uh they might keep it on the down low and i mean what is the technology they'll use to do that um so you have well, I mean, they can get their own. I mean, they can do it now. They can get their tissues. I think stem cell technology is getting a lot better, mm. um, and so I think you could you could clone yourself just from your own cells. But it's going to cost a ton. For yeah, a while. yeah, yeah. I think you got to be like a billionaire or hundred million. I don't know. I but I think it's doable. And so like if all right, I'm looking for a patron who's out there who wants to clone me. <laughs> That'd be awesome. You know what? Um, just 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 wait until like. Peter and Elon have their clone <laughs> armies and they've like made it cheaper through economies of scale. Damn. That's awesome. All right. So um, w- another topic that you're very, that was awesome, by the way, that was an excellent masterclass in uh, genotyping in a practical way. So 
another topic that you're very interested in in your newsletter is ancient DNA. I'm curious what kinds of what are the big puzzles that you think ancient DNA might soon solve, sure. and 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 what do you think the solution to the, to those puzzles will be? Yeah, so um, so when you take a genome sequence of one individual, what you're doing is you're sequencing their whole pedigree. So you're sampling a human pedigree. So one thing people don't understand, uh, they have difficulty understanding, is one individual is actually a – can I swear? Yeah, I think so. Sure. That's a fuck ton of information. <laughs> yeah. You know, you get 3 billion base pairs. That's 3 billion potential, 3 billion potential variables. Now, I already told you that really only a small percentage of your genome is truly variable. So that small percentage is, is on the order of 10 to 100 million, depending on how you count it. Okay? That's a lot of variables. And so when people say, oh, it's only one genome, it's only one individual, that's 10 to 100 million variables. That's a lot of information, and you're sampling an individual's pedigree. So if they're representative, so if you're representative of, out of, of, of Eurasians, I can tell you from your genome that your ancestors went through a bottleneck, that our ancestors went through a bottleneck, uh, you know, 50 to 70,000 years ago with a population of like on the order of like 1,000 every generation for like that many years. Like these are the things that you can tell. A whole species history is there in your genome, right? So when we get ancient DNA, when it's high quality, this is the sort of thing they can do. Now, it's not always high quality. You can't always do that, right? But um, you, have this phylo you have this phylogenetic tree that we've been creating um, in science for these decades, and now we can pop in the internal nodes. Fascinating. So do you think substantively, though, what are, what are the myths that you think people currently believe that will be disproven by uh, ancient DNA? Well, I mean, one thing that has been disproven by ancient DNA is continuity. So the idea was, you know, humans spread out of Africa, and they just kind of settled, and everyone's descended from the first people there. It turns out there's been multiple turnovers almost everywhere. Um, so the first settlers often don't last. They don't stick. Uh, people get replaced. There's migration. There's replacement. There's competition. So that's definitely been a new revolution. Um, I think one myth in terms of people, what they think is, you know, there's been a lot of phenotypic uh, evolution, um, and, you know, we can infer it. We can look at the genome and make a statistical calculation, but it's different when you can concretely see it. So I can tell you that, like, I saw some Iron Age samples from Estonia, and something like, I think it was like 70% of the um, alleles of the genetic variants for eye color were for blue eyes. Today, it's 95%. And that's, so that's 2,500 years. There was no overall genome-wide change. There was no population moving in. So what does that mean? That means there was natural selection. Does that mean that humans prefer blue eyes? Well, people stuff? in Northeast Europe have way more blue eyes than they did 2,000 years ago. But I'm saying, what do you think is the mechanism? Like, uh, We don't know. Are, do you think people are more likely to abort like brown-eyed kids or something like that? I think or? people today are, but we don't really know. I mean, people in the past, they had different preferences because they were on the Malthusian margin, right? Um, I think it's not implausible that because pigmentation pathways are hooked into a lot of other, so if you if you take testosterone you're gonna get darker like, darker skin yeah because no testosterone chance. because what happens is testosterone I'm thinking about it by the way <laughs> testosterone upregulates your melanocortin so if you look at a lot of these gym bros mm. you start noticing they're a little like swarthy fascinating I always assumed that was tanning like yeah they, I mean, they do with... they do tan okay. <laughs> but yeah once you once when men hit puberty they get darker. After women like hit menopause, they get darker because their testosterone to estrogen ratio shifts. So estrogen tends to make you paler. Testosterone makes you darker. Huh. And that's just a side effect of like the fact that all these hormonal pathways are mixed in together. Fascinating. Well, watchers of the of the show will know that if I start looking like a brown guy, yeah. it's because I'm uh, jacked up on <laughs> testosterone. <laughs> Fascinating. I, I think they will maybe notice because of the 
thickness of the neck first, <laughs> but you know. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So any other puzzles that you think will be solved that will blow people's minds? When um, so, you know, there's the adaptation, how much adaptation there has been. That's going to blow people's minds. Um, I think, uh, what else would it be? I think another thing that will blow people's minds, and I think this is true, and I think there's enough suggestive evidence about it, is that um, in the past, people were much more diverse in a local region. Like the mm. last 10,000 years, especially the last 5,000 years, has been the great mixing um, in terms of – so, for example, in Germany 5,000 years ago – Seven to 5,000 years ago, um, there was so much segregation between hunter-gatherers and farmers that their genetic distance in Germany, um, in like a local, in a local launder, right, in a local like province, was as great as the genetic distance between modern Western Europeans and Chinese. Okay, that's fascinating because that definitely pushes back against some of the kind of chauvinist, often kind of racist uh, imaginations people have about, oh, all of human history, people lived in, you know, racially homogenous groups yeah everything was really different back then so for example like um, the place to see the europeans at the beginning of the holocene after the end of the last ice age were very different than the ones today they're not genetically super similar but um they had very dark skin and they almost all had blue eyes hmm. like no population in the world looks like that today hmm. the farmers that came in from the middle east had light skin and dark eyes so modern europeans kind of combine the two they have light skin and northern europeans have light eyes and so a lot of the combinations that you see around today in the world are new. So someone that looked like me didn't exist uh, 5,000 years ago because my genetic combination only really came into being like four to 3,000 years ago. Wow, four to 3,000 like years all, ago. So not pretty much all ago. brown people. Fascinating. Or South Asians, subcontinent, whatever you want to call it, you know? Interesting. So on this topic of, of what people look like, it's interesting to note that one of the hot topics today is that we know the American population is changing. Uh, a lot of people speculate that white people will no longer be a majority sometime around in the 2040s. Yeah, depending on what you count as white. Well, OK, that's something interesting we could go into. But one th what question you're making me think about is that I think in the popular imagination, what this means in America is that the average person in 2040s, 2050s is going to be a kind of uh, vaguely brown yeah, skin. Yeah, I need to do a substack on this. This is, so, this, so is hit a, me. this is a fundamental problem with how people understand genetics. They think of it as a blending process. It's not a blending process. It's discrete digital information that's hmm. recombined every generation. Otherwise, everyone would already look like tan Oompa Loompas. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> right. what you're imagining, right? Well, because there was a Time cover, right? There was a Time magazine yes. cover not yes. too long ago. But that's that... the average human. That's not the... There's always going to be variation. So if you go to Brazil... Everyone doesn't look the same. Right. There's people who look black. There's people that look like you. There's a lot of people in the middle, and there's a distribution. And so what you see with pigmentation is you can think of it as, like, binomial variants. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a distribution. There shall there will always be people that look a certain way from the ancestral type because of the recombination of things. There's going to be new people. So I have a friend, and she is one-fourth Russian. Her paternal grandfather was Russian and three-fourths Han Chinese, and she married a white American man. And they have a daughter who looks pretty much Eurasian, but she has bright blue eyes. Okay? And that's because the mom is one-fourth Russian, and she inherited the copy from her father, who has brown eyes. And she herself has brown eyes. But she inherited the copy from her paternal grandfather. And blue eyes is a recessive trait. So that paternal copy came back. Her husband has blue eyes. And so now she has a daughter who looks pretty Asian. Not like, you know, she's Eurasian. But she has bright blue eyes. Right. That's a new combination through admixture. But when you say there's going to be new people, aren't you kind of assuming that these new types 
you're describing are going to kind of cluster and then reproduce in, in a sufficient uh, kind of consistency that it'll be a known type? Is that what you think will happen? Or I think there's going to be correlations. You know, so for example, in China or in New York City, in the in for, in a period between like 1980 and up to about like the early 2000s, um, there are a lot of Jewish girls of Han Chinese racial backgrounds because hmm. they were adopted by Jewish families in New York City. It was just hmm. a thing. Um, that China cut that pipeline off about like 15 years ago, I think, for various political reasons. You know, but these girls are raised as Jews. They're probably going to marry Jewish guys, you know. So there's going to be a lot of mixed Asian Jews, and, the, and you're saying over time that will become its own kind of almost like a racial category. Well, I'm just saying a lot of Ashkenazi Jews in the United States will have Asian heritage, and it's not a big deal. Sure, it's just going to be kind of understood. Um, probably because of class, they're going to be less likely to have Latino heritage. Okay, because Latinos tend to be more working class. They live in the Southwest. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So you're going to see certain combinations more common than other combinations, and I think that's what you're leading to, and I think that's going to happen. Fascinating. So the the picture that people have in their mind of America in 2050, where everyone is just a kind of light brown uh, kind of uh, yeah. uh, homogenous mixture, false. that's false. Yeah. And but you did acknowledge that that would maybe be the average. If you average everyone together, but of course, no person is an average yeah, of everyone else. Just, so, I mean, maybe if you maybe in theory, assuming total random mating, which is not going to happen, um, you could have an average, you could have a mode, right? So, the most common for the listener viewer, right? Right. The most common person could look like that. You know, like, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to dox my children, but I mean, you know, they're like tan people with brown hair and hazel eyes. Mm hmm. I mean, that's the, so the real story that is more important and substantively significant is that there will just be more heterogeneity. Yes, there's going to be more. The range, the variance will increase. Uh, the range will increase. Like, you know, you go to Brazil, you can find people in Brazil, Cape Verde, some of these places um, with blonde afros. <laughs> yeah. And it's not they're not dying it. They just they have yeah. blonde hair and they have like African textured hair. So that's going to be a thing. There will be people who look pretty Asian to you, and yet they have, like, your hair color and blue eyes. Hmm. And there are already some people like that. You just go to Finland, hmm. you know. Okay, fascinating. So you wrote recently about an interesting topic. You wrote about the, the question of whether we can speak about evolution as having a kind of directionality. Okay. And it was an interesting essay where you kind of went through – other people's perspectives. But yeah. I felt like you kind of left us hanging on on your own perspective. So I'm curious what, what you think when it comes to, for people listening, and you know, the basic story here is that most people, I would say, probably educated opinion today, generally sees evolution as an inherently directionless phenomena. Yeah. But some people, some very smart people in different times and places have argued that there is a way of seeing a certain direction to it. Yeah. You cite in your essay people like uh, Pierre Chardin and then more contemporary writers like Robert Wright. Yeah. A lot of people do think you can see a directionality in evolution. I'm curious where you come down on that. Do you do you do you think it's it's reasonable or correct to to see a certain directionality in evolution, specifically towards let's say greater complexity, or perhaps we might even say greater intelligence, or perhaps mm. the opposite way, perhaps greater entropy? How, how do you think about it? So, I mean, I think it's a probabilistic. There's a probabilistic situation. So, if you rewound the clock and ran it again, there there's going to be a range of outcomes. I guess I would say like just the empirical data and what I've seen a different what we've seen in different lineages of the, of of, of um, you know living organisms probably is some 
directionality towards greater complexity. Uh, because, I mean, if being a bacteria was the best, <laughs> was the most, everyone would be a bacteria, you know? Yeah. Uh, there are niches where greater complexity adds value on the margin. So, I, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, in the long term, it's heat death, entropy, that's going to kick in at some point. Um, but in the medium time scale at this level of granularity, it's quite clear that, um, to me, that there is greater complexity. With human cultures, you see greater complexity. That's a cultural evolutionary process, not a biological one, but same, the same process applies. Uh, human cultures are getting more, they're changing much faster. So um, ancient Egypt, as a unified culture that we would understand and recognize, uh, flourished between 3000 BC and about 1000 BC. That's 2000 years. That's as long as between us and Julius Caesar. You know, and like we, we, we probably would like not recognize culturally someone from 200 years ago. So the rate of cultural change has increased. I think that that does pose a problem um, with our social technology um, where we could just burn out as a species. Like maybe that's the answer to the Fermi paradox. We just start changing and like by the end, we're like changing every minute and we just go insane, <laughs> you know. Um, so ultimately, does it have a directionality? The directionality might be just end to end, right? <laughs> but in the in, in the in the time scales that we're curious about, I think it is towards more complexity, uh, more intricacy. Uh, yes. So interesting. So so if complexity and change is the directionality baked into evolutionary processes, then you, you one could interpret that as a, a, a data point in favor of the kind of trad philosophy of simplicity, Lindy. You know, go back to basics, sure. perhaps, right? To yeah. is that the way to escape the great filter? Well, I think I think the 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 what I worry about, and you know, what I think is is an argument for trad simplicity would be, uh, we might get caught up in a cultural riptide. You know, there's all it's like the waves are getting higher, they're crashing more. We're like surfing; it's awesome. And then, like, in 100 years, nobody has children because everyone's just masturbating 24-7. I don't know. You right. know? Because, right. like, their porn is so immersive and so much better than reality. So this is a great point. Let's talk about this matter of different people having children and other people not having children. Yeah. So if you look, we know a lot about what types of people have children. And it kind of relates to what I was saying before about the the directionality of American demographics in that if religious people, as we know, are more likely to have children. And right now it seems to me that there's a particular subset of kind of modern rationalistic, secularistic careerist cosmopolitan types who in America seem less likely to have children. Yeah. How do you see this playing out and what are the kind of the most interesting takes, whether that be genetically or politically or what, yeah. how, how, how do you look at that phenomenon? Well, so Eric Kaufman had this book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, like over 10 years ago. I think that has a lot of good insights in it. Um, I do think culturally, uh, antinatalism has a short shelf life. Um, it's just, it, it can't, I mean, by definition, tautologically, it can't become dominant and last for very long. Uh, eventually, the minority of people that want children will just inherit the earth because they're the only ones who have children. Now you could have a situation where, you know, their children are converted every generation, some sort of equilibrium state. I think that's what we're seeing. You know, uh, religious people have had more children than non-religious people for at least 200 years, probably. But Americans get getting more and more secular. 
because you know they're being converted, right? And so you can you can have an equilibrium culturally, but um, I do think that our current ages like fixation on individual self actualization, hedonism, and um, you know just living for the now, I think that that has a short shelf life. I mean, look at the doubling time of the Amish. You know, I, they're just there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Amish, and there's going to be more than a million Amish, I think, uh, uh, by the end of the century. So basically, what you're saying is that this is a non-issue because the atheist, careerist types who don't want to have kids are just going to exit the gene pool. Yeah, don't don't hate on atheist careers too much. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm not. But, yeah, yeah. But you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it, you know, when they say, you know, when people say that, you know, I saw something in the New York Times or somewhere where it was basically like, don't have children. Um, I had children when I was young, and it was a horrible decision. You should just go travel and experience the world. And, um, you know, to be judgmental, I just like, God, you're such a hedonistic, pathetic human being. Like I'm, I'm being editorial here. Sure. I, I don't, you know, I'm just like, okay, I mean, I've traveled the world. I know. It's I was fine. just going to say, you can travel the, the yeah. world when you're in your 20s and then also have a family. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's just like... I don't get this whole idea. It's like, I got to smell the mountains on the other side of the world as well as the mountain. You know, I mean, I'm just saying like children versus another building. Right. I mean, I think buildings are great. I think architecture is great. I think nature is great and different types of nature and architecture are great. But there's something wrong in your value system when children are just like not as exciting. Right. And it's not that having children is exciting, but it's rewarding. Right. And... I'm fine with people saying they don't want to have children. Just don't have children. I don't want to hear about it anymore. So it sounds like you're not in the camp of people that sees this as a kind of civilizational problem. That I mean, it is a short-term problem, but it will correct itself. We just need to be able to like face it on and understand. So, I mean, there's a fundamental problem. I remember like, you know, I, I, when I was in graduate school, I had a student who was a little older and, you know, I I was talking to her. We were talking about. I was talking about kids because she was married and all this stuff. And I was like, "Oh, are you guys gonna have kids? Like, how's that working?" And she's like, "Oh, we're not gonna have kids." And I was like, "Oh, well, I mean, that's good." And she's like, "Yeah, like we're saving and we're just gonna get. We're gonna retire in like twenty years or whatever and just like travel the world." And I'm like, "Well, I'm glad that uh, my kids are paying for your retirement." And then she got all offended. She was like, "What do you mean you?" And I'm just like, well, "Where do you think?" Where do you think these funds are coming from? Where do you think Social Security and where do you think the mutual funds? Um, are investing. Uh, it's the future people that are still economically active. And she was like, oh, I had never thought about that. And I'm like, exactly. You never <laughs> thought about that. You're a consumption machine, and you think it's all about you. And it's just not like that. There's a whole system. Um, people like me, uh, you know, who have children, more than two children, we're the ones that are producing the future economic activity, and we're foregoing our own consumption. You know, I can tell you, the things I haven't done in the last decade, but that's fine. It, it's worth it. Um, so I would do it again. But my only point is there's a smugness to some child. Let's just get on my nerves because uh, they think that, oh, well, you know, they're they're adding all this value into the world. And I'm like, you're going to be old in a nursing home and other people's kids are going to have to take care of you, hmm. you know, which is fine. But just like understand like the choices you're making. And like when I see articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and you know, I subscribe to them, so I'm mentioning them, um, about like being childless and how you're happy. I don't really, I almost never see anyone above the age of 55. That's suspicious to me. Hmm. I, I want to talk to a childless 80 year old that's super excited about this. Yeah, there's definitely a, a selection effect there that might be very misleading for people who read that kind of literature and find it inspiring. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, 
I'm healthy. Like I could have been childless. Like, you know, I could be traveling every weekend and all this stuff, you know? Yeah. Someone should go interview childless 60 year olds and, you know, write some stories in the New York times about that. No, the subscribers are paying for that. Yeah. Stuff. Well, that's, you know what that's, I'm saying? that's, like, that's the selection wanna... effect, right? That's so, so yeah, I agree with you. There's, there's some very uh, biased perceptions around that. So do you think much about genetically engineered bioweapons? This is something that is quite interesting, and it seems like a very live threat. Uh, yeah. Does this keep you up at night, and what do you think about it? I, it doesn't because um, they tend to be – so bioweapons are useful if you can do time release, time, you know, if you can hide your, hide your tracks. They're, they could be possibly useful for hiding your tracks, but they're not usually very effective for what you want to do. So if you want to do targeted murder – you know, old school physical weapons are still the best. Um, a bioweapon might not, it might be only 80% effective, you know? But at the scale you're applying it, 80% effective would be way more damage. Yeah, than... but it would probably also kill a lot of you. Okay, so let's break that down. So is, is the problem that it's not refined enough to be so targeted? So the, the, If the... it's refined, it doesn't work. If it's precise, you don't get much bang for the buck. And if you get a lot of bang for the buck, it's not precise. Okay, so let's break that down for a minute because I think the nightmare scenario people imagine is, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ethnic conflict in the world. Yeah, yeah. People could imagine a terrorist group wants to wipe out a certain specific ethnicity. Yeah. They design a, a genetically engineered bioweapon that is maybe just like coronavirus or something like that, but it only affects a particular subset of the population according to their genetic yeah. data. So what what are you saying here about the trade-off between specificity and, and effectiveness? Well, I mean, if you target if you target particular genetic variants uh, that are common, they're common. Right. Across the world. Right, but okay, let's just say I'm I mean know... the overlap is not perfect, so it's gonna have disparate impact. Right. But it's gonna cause a lot of collateral damage. But what? Let's say I'm a Hindu person. I'm just pulling these out of thin yeah, air, sure. of course. Let's say I'm a Hindu person and I hate like the, you know, the Tartars or something like that, right? And I just want to kill all the Tartars in the world. Yeah. Uh, couldn't you design a bioweapon that would only affect the Tartars, or no? Probably not, but it could be non-trivially specific. Um, I need to think about this now. You've actually made me start thinking about it. <laughs> I don't well, know. I, it's I, don't, I don't want people. It's, to, it's troubling. I, I mean, don't want people. Now I'm starting to stress out. <laughs> Um, <laughs> because we do have much better technology than we did 10 years ago when I, I think I mean this. my understanding is that this type of po application is conceivable and increasingly so and so if you do have groups that want to do harm to other groups uh, in a way that's genetically definable it seems like a live wire well so you know I mean you know you know this most of the listeners and viewers I mean you know you can do ancestry inference pretty well the main issue though is um you know, if you're looking at only a subset of the genome, there's going to be a lot of overlap, you know. So if you want to precisely target a single human being, that seems like – I mean, that's why, like, I think I, I, I've heard the heads of state, you know, all of their genetic material is always accounted for. Like, they, they're not going to throw a cup into the waste bin. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Hillary was being – I remember in 2016, they people were following Hillary around to – make sure that she didn't leave like a tissue or anything like that because once you have their genetic material you're ahead of state you could you could it's not economically efficient for someone to develop a bioweapon to target you because like i mean you're Too not much worth work that. for you're one not, person yeah, you're not worth that you could just much shoot someone yeah yeah um but um if you're ahead of state if you're a billionaire you know it might be worth it 
And so, um, you know, it's all it's all about like bang for the buck. As far as like ethnically targeted bioweapons, there has been some research from what I've heard, rumors in certain countries. Um, and the problem is usually the enemies are genetically kind of close to you because <laughs> they're close to you. You know, it's usually not Bolivians who want to target Chinese. I see. It's Bolivians that would want to target Peruvians. And guess what? So the risks are much greater, and it becomes harder to inflict that kind of damage through a genetically biased. Uh, well, the collateral engineer. damage, if you're willing to, I mean, you could probably, I don't know, I don't want to get in trouble with anyone, but, no. uh, you know, you could probably design, if you're a Bolivian scientist, you could design something that hits Peruvians harder, but it might take out 60% of your country, too. Right. And so it's like mutually assured destruction. Yeah, it is. And so I think that's the fundamental problem. Now, if you want to like attack the long and the far enemy, I think I guess it would be more feasible. Um, but again, you know, humans do overlap a lot. So you need to be very careful how you design it. Right. Otherwise, it's going to start like like imagine imagine you design a bioweapon. And it kills like ten percent of your enemy, and it kills one percent your own population. If you're a totalitarian population country, maybe that's a trade off you want to take. Mm-hmm. If you're a democratic population, no. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a democrat, if they find out, they'll kill you. Sure. You know, like right. li- they'll kill the developers. There are a lot of authoritarian countries out there. Yeah. So I guess like let's worry about authoritarian countries. I need to think about it in more detail. Um, I can't dismiss it out of hand. Yeah. Um, it's just been, it's like artificial intelligence, like uh, AGI, artificial general intelligence. It's been something that's always 10 years down the line. Right. Perpetually. So, yeah, and I'm hoping that it'll be 10 years down the line. I think it might also be similar in that I think there's a case to be made that, fortunately, the types of people who want to conduct systematic genocide campaigns are generally not the types of people who have the resources and the sophistication to organize very advanced scientific engineering. Yeah, in theory, Not always the case, but th- there's something of a, a a correlation there that might be the reason why we don't see that. Yeah, um, well, I'm thinking here, uh, you know, again, like we're coming back to the Fermi paradox. It's kind of dark. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> because like as we get more and more advanced, um, there is the capability of someone going full 12 monkeys on us. Right, yeah. Okay, very dark. Let's change gears I, I don't, a little yeah, bit. I don't want to think about this anymore. <laughs> so something else that you know a lot about and that you write a lot about is the Indian caste system. And I wanted to talk about this briefly because it's quite in vogue, I would say, to analyze American politics with a kind of pseudo-caste sure. lens. Yeah. And I, I just want to unpack a little bit how far you think that goes. Do you, I mean, do you— I don't you, think it goes. Very you don't far. think you get much analytical leverage? Well, out of... I think the word the caste in America is a real thing, but it's totally different than the Indian caste. Okay, so break it down. What is caste in America? Like caste in America is the fact that, um, excuse me. Um, so um, caste in America is the fact that um, I have a friend who is now a professor, tenured professor, and um, this person is a white American. And because he believe, and he's not a very politically radical person, but he believes in what I call the myth of white supremacy, that now that he's an upper middle class white American, he has all the privileges of every upper middle class white American. And I don't think that that's empirically true. He comes from a, his mom, his mom is a single mom. Uh, he comes from a lower middle class to lower class background. And I think that's going to affect his life going forward in ways he can't understand. It's going to affect his children in ways he can't understand. Like, they're not going to be able to get the same type of internships that his colleagues from a traditional upper-middle-class background are going to be able to get because they're not going to know the right people uh, over the summers. 
They right. don't. They don't have a summer home somewhere else. He's gonna have to build up that ge- intergenerational wealth himself. You know. Right. So what you're saying is that no matter how successful you are in America, there are still these hidden invisible yes, contours. Yes, it still has an effect, and this is a noisy process. Right. I'm not saying that you his children are automatically going to regress, but I've talked to multiple academics who buy this idea that because they're white, if they obtain enough material success, they're automatically accessing all the privileges of whiteness, and that, I just don't think that's true. Okay, right. And so, I mean, at, as, a, as a kid who comes from a working-class family and made it pretty far up the, the ranks of, of you know social status, I definitely testify to that as well. I mean, it seems to me that there is a kind of mainline kind of white Protestant kind of Brahmin class, right? You probably say in the United States, is, is that how yeah, you would wasp, map it? Wasp. Wasp, and you yeah. can tell, you can tell when they talk. Yeah. They have a particular accent. Like some people affect it, but mm-hmm. I have a friend and she is a lawyer in New York city and she sounds like a lawyer from New York city. Right. And they have a way of knowing their own kind and right. And so, Okay, so that would that would roughly be the Brahmin class, and I mean, do you have a do you have a take on how the rest of the American caste system maps out? Like, how would you characterize it? Well, you know, I mean, there's the boat people, you know, the MAGA boat people. They're like, you know, working class or like associates, educated people that made it up a lot of money. Yeah, and so that's like a different caste where they're kind of showy, they're flashy, um, they don't have class, they have money. That's what you would say. And, you know, these are the people that voted for Trump. These are the people, working class people that did well, but that are worried about immiseration because they see it around them. They see it in their families. Um, You know, they see it they see it like in their communities as opposed to the Brahmin class, which I mean, I don't know if, you know, I. I don't know too many people without college degrees. Sure. That's how I'll say it. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying everyone I know is even middle class, although most of them are middle class and above. Um, but uh, I don't know the people I grew up with anymore. I grew up in Northeast Oregon, so it was kind of like diverse in a class way. It was obviously all white, but it was very diverse in class. We had one high school in town, you know? Right. And so um, I've self-segregated. You probably have too, you know? We're, we're on the same social Sure, circles. most people do, yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, how many working class people do you know personally anymore, you know? Sure. Like, I don't know. I know like a couple. So when you think about the woke phenomenon, do you think about this as a as a, as a relatively epiphenomenal short term thing? Or do you think that it's going to be able to make inroads into the deep structure of the American caste system? I don't think it's going to make a deep, deep impact on the American caste system. Um, I But I. But I don't think it's it's going to be short term. I think it's going to leave scars. It does seem, though, to be a kind of war for the Brahmin position doesn't it in a way i mean there, yeah, there I is mean, this kind of new competitor it's, a, it's like a competitor it's a priestly positional, class right? it's a positional game like I, I think of wokeism as as an instrument in positional games um unlike mark unlike classical economic marxism and materialism which is just about re- redistribution of concrete things wokeism is a um the woke competition seems to be a mad scramble for status and it's but it's specifically through that kind of priestly moralistic very, uh, pathway right they, they, yeah they believe in the power of words the power of language uh symbolic manipulation so it is it, it, if you see it that way then it is a bid for the brahmin status in well a way. It, i mean the question is like can it can it succeed i mean yeah i mean look this is what i was saying um yesterday to to a friend of mine a republican friend of mine 
Um, you know, this is what's going to happen in America. At the end of the day, everyone's going to kill everybody else. It's going to cancel out. There's going to be two people left standing. <laughs> there's going to be a right-wing Republican Gujarati Patel, and there's going to be SJW Gujarati Patel because they're going to be huh. like everyone's assimilating into these two tribes. Interesting. You know? So that's that's your theory of the long run equilibrium. I'm of just joking. I mean, I'm kind of oh, joking, okay. yeah. but my point is like you know some of the wokest, most like uh, vociferous SJW people are people that look like me, especially women, to be frank. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they're upper middle class. Mm-hmm. They're probably the children. They could be the children of doctors, engineers, right? Uh, but they deploy their fact that they're brown, that they don't have white skin privilege. But this is BS, right? But the question is, will it work, or how long, how much longer can it work? Is is it is it a sustainable pathway to? I don't, actually... I don't, I don't think it is because a lot of working class non whites in particular are defecting because they're sick of it. True. I mean, I mean. How little do woke people respect Latinos that they actually just renamed them without consulting them? Right. That's like very insulting and offensive. Like, what if someone, someone, someone told uh, Chinese people <laughs> they just put an X at the end of their name? Right. And like Chinese people are like, wait, we, we don't call ourselves this. Well, you know, like we've we had we had a a conference and we decided that this is more in, non-binary inclusive. Right. You know, right. it's like, what what the hell? Okay, so you're you're bearish generally on the woke phenomenon. You think it doesn't have the longest legs and it probably will kind of fizzle out on account of being unsustainable kind of. Yeah, I, I also like, I you know, I, I you know, I don't know. I, we I haven't talked about politics too much with you. I, I have some pretty reactionary cultural views. Um, you know, I think we're in the Kali Yuga. I think people are like inverting normality. Um, and I don't think that that's sustainable. I think human nature is what it is and, um, it will ultimately come back to that into some sort of stable state. There's only like certain ways you can organize this. Right. So, you know, like, we, like, let's say polyamory. Okay. We have mutual friends who are into that sort of stuff. <laughs> this has been tried multiple times in United States history. It always peters out as a cultural phenomenon. I'm not saying that it always, it goes extinct. Mm-hmm. But as like a lifestyle choice and a cultural phenomenon, it always peters out because guess what? Most people can't do this, you know? And so this idea that everyone should experiment with their sexuality, no. I mean, you know, I'm Gen X, so I can tell you. Some people are born gay. They're born that way. And I don't – I think that it was a – I think it was like kind of an injustice that when they were young, they were demanded to make sure that they were gay. You know, like it wasn't natural for them. Right. That's not what they, what they wanted to do, and so that's why we, as a generation, decided. You know, they get to do their own thing. Like, let them be who they are. Mm-hmm. Now I feel it's the pendulum has swung in a weird way, where a lot of people are like, "Well, you should like experiment with your gender identity and your sexuality," and I'm like, "You should." <laughs> yeah. Don't but, talk to me. Just wait until those people get crisper. Yeah, which is true. And like that's but that's at least like concrete. Right. Like if you want to be if you want to be like a cat man, crisper that up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like yeah. more power to you. That's your choice. My only point is I think that people are trying to push a level of flexibility and openness on the typical American, the typical human where it's like, no, we're, most of us are pretty much template people. Right. Like there's a template, you know, we we age we marry, we have children, you know, right. it's like the Indian system. It's like you're, you know, you're a young man, you're a householder, and then you're, you retire and you go into the forest to contemplate, stuff like that. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to close by talking a little bit about your Substack and your various projects. Your Substack is called Unsupervised sure. Learning. It is. You also do a podcast. Yes. And I want to talk a little bit about how you're seeing the landscape for contemporary independent intellectuals such mm-hmm. as yourself, because this is a kind of running theme on my podcast, something I, I talk a lot about and think a lot about. And I remember that you and I talked on the phone one time, probably more than a year ago. It was September I, 2019. Okay. So you remember the conversation I'm thinking of. And I remember you telling me how you were basically saying that you really wish you could do more independent intellectual work, but it's it's hard to to make it feasible because, you know, you have a family and you have a, you have a job and, and, and all of that. And uh, lo and behold, uh, about a year later, you have a successful substack that... In, in other words, the landscape changes so rapidly. Yeah, yeah And that's so fair. prospects for doing this kind of thing seem to be improving rapidly by the year. So I'm just curious, in light of that, how are you seeing the Substack phenomenon? How are you – do you have any kind of interesting observations or testimonies to um, kind of the larger landscape? Anything you see that's interesting or want to share? Yeah. So um, I think I can share the fact that um, Substack itself, uh, they are having issues scaling because so many people joined. Right. You know, like Sullivan joined over the summer. Are you Substack Pro? Are you in that group? No, I'm not. Okay. Um, Yeah, don't criticize me because (laughs) I took less than I should. (laughs) You're not on the secret payroll? Okay. (laughs) No, I'm not. I just, like, joined because, you know, I saw Matt Iglesias joined and he was doing well. And I'm like, well, Matt Iglesias is doing well. I should be doing well because, you know, I think I'm a little bit more of a unique product. You nice. know, I don't have the qu- quantity. Nice. Drop, I I... Dropping some bows on him. No, I, I don't have the quantity that no, he's got. No, it's good for the views, man. This is but, good. But Ma- he, make he... some more beefs with other people. This no, he's got qual. I got quality, though. You know, like, where <laughs> are you going to read about the step and, you know, all the latest on, like, the science stuff? It's like... Yeah, that's you go my, deep. You go real deep. That's my Substack, right? It's, it's not just, just it's not just like political takes and corny kind of superficial stuff. You go deep. Yeah, and like political takes and corny superficial stuff. I mean, I subscribe to Iglesias' Substack, so whatever. Like I yeah. I enjoy it. I don't read all of it because it's like every day, dude. You know? <laughs> like my stuff, like it's it's less frequent. I do the podcast at least once a week. But the other stuff, the written stuff, like when it's like a five or six thousand word essay, or like my step pieces where it's like I've done one, two, three of those, and each one is five to six thousand words, and they're highly edited and all that stuff. Um, and I, you know, I even like uh, from my, I did some India pieces in January, uh, where I commissioned some visuals. You know, so I put, I'm putting some effort. It's yeah. more than a blog post, and um, you know, check it out. But it's been going well. I've been getting a lot of good feedback. Um, but text, I'm mostly gating, uh, because I basically feel at this point, I want people to pay for this because I'm going to put a lot of effort into it. And there's going to be people out there who want to read this. And if you're not willing to pony up, that's fine. Yeah. I don't care. So, okay. So this is interesting. So you're, you're kind of more on the side of paywalling more rather than less. Yeah. Okay. And I know that there is a philosophy. Well, it like, just debates about what's optimal. So I'm curious yeah. about your perspective. Well, I mean, I've that. done like, I've done okay. I'm just, I'm not gonna tell you how well, but like you can go and look, give us a range. I mean, I got, like, I have, a, I have like a thousand paid subscribers. In that range, okay, right in on. that order, yeah. okay. Like I can say that because you can you can tell if you go look, right? You know, um, but uh, so and those people they get the text now. Could I release the text? Some of it I could at some point, but ultimately I don't think most people really want to read five to six thousand words. They want to like get a click, a paragraph, a headline, right? And that, they, they they can get that podcast. I feel I always release everything free after two weeks. Sometimes I just release it free immediately. But um, my podcast, my podcasts aren't like news of the day, so usually mm-hmm. they're pretty evergreen. Yeah, and I record it and I release it, and then I do it two weeks later. I do it free because I just feel like 
that, that's a more casual thing. And there's a lot of people out there who want to listen and learn, but they don't necessarily want to pay. But if you're going to pay for like a 6,000, I mean, if you want to read a 6,000 word essay that I spent a week revising over and over again and trying to like pick just the right word to communicate to the public in a precise way that doesn't diminish the accuracy of the underlying science, mm-hmm. um, then you should do that. You sure. know, I'm not just going to throw that out there anymore, sure. which I have in the past. And are you seeing consistent growth in the subscriber count? Like every pretty, week, every month? Pretty consistent. I've seen pretty – I mean, the, the, basically, whenever I release a text piece, uh, I will – I think I can say this without – you know, whenever I release, like, a big piece of text, I get a lot of subscribers. Like, people are really driven by the text. Now, because that, people are sharing it with their friends. Yeah. And also um, – you know, I guess if I get, like, high-profile guests sometimes, like, I had Greg Clark on. Uh, David Anthony is an Indo-Europeanist. Like, a lot of people subscribe. Sometimes, if, like, I like to have my podcast be a mix of, like, high-profile and just people I find interesting. I, I think it needs a diverse portfolio, and um, and that's what I try to do with the podcast. With the text, I do let the readers who are paying guide me a bit in terms of, like, what, what are you interested in? I did a two-part series on the Romani, on the Gypsies of Europe, at the end of May, and that was kind of, like... You know, it was something people had asked about before. And so I took a break from the step, and I did that. And now I'm doing a five-part series. Uh, I I did the first three already on Finns. I have two of them drafted, and I'm editing. Those will be released this week. And then I'm releasing a, uh, a piece on um, the important or the, the relevance of plague to the arrival of the Indo-Europeans and the collapse of the Neolithic civilizations. And so I'm continuing the step. Um, Indo-Europeans are going to be my next three to five pieces. Right on. And then I move later in time. And so do you have any read on where you think this whole creator economy is going? You know, now that you're kind of in the, in the thick of it and you have a successful project, like, do you see yourself in five years? Are you building a whole company around this? Or are you, how do you see the future? I don't see myself building a whole company. I have like a, another, um, I have other stuff that I'm doing uh, related to being a scientist. And I don't talk about that in public because I, I already have too high of a profile for people um, who fund things. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm too much of a lightning rod. So uh, I'm still doing that. Like, look, if they paid, if I could make enough from the Substack to to live, on a, have a comfortable upper middle class lifestyle, I can imagine myself doing that. Although the only thing that I worry about is, you know, being a working scientist gives me kind of like, my hands are kind of in the guts of it. Yeah. You have a feel. I Like, you know, I'm talking to you about like, technology is like what i know that if i didn't do the science anymore like five years from now right so that does always worry me i like to do multiple things you know i mean you're the same i think you know we do co- we code we do podcasts we write but i know what you you're know. talking about because i i did kind of take the plunge away from the career to do all this stuff full time and i think you're right i think you do you do lose contact with something uh that is important and you have to come up with other ways of maintaining that contact so, so i think that's a correct perception so you feel like you actually kind of prefer having a job in the weeds as well as doing the Substack, it's so, hard though. It's yeah. hard to balance the focus, you know, uh, the 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 trade off in time and everything like that. And is your audience are the paying subscribers? Do you get the sense they're they're? It's a very sophisticated crowd. It's mostly professionals. Mostly what do you mostly? Think? But um, I'm surprised. There's you know there's like you know retired people without college degrees, plumber. Um, I get a fair number because it's a newsletter. Even though it's on, on the web as well, I get a fair number of emails. And it's, you know, they're just like a lot of them are super appreciative, especially the retirees. Uh, they can tell that I put the time into it. Yeah. And, you know, they're basically like, you know, I can't find this el- elsewhere. This is why they're paying. Like, I mean, so in terms of the economy, economics, like, I don't know how that's going to work. Mm-hmm. Like, I pay for like a bunch of Substacks myself. But, um, you know, so people are like, you know, like right now my yearly is 75. 
Okay, like you could get like three hardcover books or something for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but how do I so how do I justify that? I think some people just want to support me because I've been doing this for a long time without being right. pay, paid. But um, if you read a book, you're committing to like one topic, right? Whereas like I'm producing like a diverse range of essays. Uh, you know, there are people who read like the Finnish genetics one, but they're not going to read the Romney genetics one and vice versa. So I think like I do add value uh, for that subscription. And like if you think of it like a book, because like, you know, you've read my stuff. Um, it's not, again, it's not like something, it's not like a reported piece in the New York Times, mm-hmm. which like, you know, I sub- still subscribe to the New York Times, but like, it's not like I'm calling some people up and reporting what they say and just like slapping on a general thesis. Sure. The reason I ask about these things is because I, since I quit academia to do all this stuff full time, I've kind of become a lightning rod for people who are interested in doing this kind of thing, sure. specifically for the more academic types, the more sophisticated types, people working in uh, fairly arcane yeah. and, and erudite domains. The the challenge that a lot of people face is they feel like this is so specialized, it's so specific, it's so narrow and so advanced. Like, how do I actually get an audience for this kind of thing? And so I think you're an interesting case um, that that you might be able to share some interesting insights sure. with my audience, specifically to this effect. I mean, what one thing you just alluded to actually, which I think is important, is that you were blogging for ages for free, right? Yeah. Many years, like more than 10 years. How long were you actively blogging? I started blogging in the spring of 2002. Yeah. Were so, you in elementary school? So you're OG in 2002. No, not elementary school. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you've been, so that's part of the ingredient here, right? I have that's, an audience. Yeah. I have, I have, I, there are people who started reading me in high school who are now, you know, old. Right. <laughs> so that's part, that's part of the lesson, right? Blog for a long time, put in the work for a long time. Well, develop a brand. Right. That sure. helps. So, I mean, I developed a brand. I had a brand. I had people who signed up immediately. I had a small MailChimp mailing list already. Um, I can tell you that my free mailing list, though, has gone up by a 6.5x since I started last year. Um, so I had a brand. Okay, that's fine. But there are people who have brands who get some free people, and then they, they can't make themselves right. They can, You know, whatever. That, I'm not going to name names, but there are people like that. Wait, subs- what do you mean by that? Well, it's like they start a Substack and they're like, "This is what the Substack's gonna be about," and a bunch of people prepay, and right. they never post. Oh, right. Which has happened to people, sure, because like they mean to, but they can't follow through. Just an execution problem or a discipline yeah. problem, or, or they didn't—they yeah. didn't anticipate like how much time they yeah. wouldn't have. Right. And so, you know, I've continued to produce content. That's obviously good. When I produce content, I have thirty-eight thousand Twitter followers, mm-hmm. and so I tweet it out. Uh, and is that all the marketing you do? Just Share, share it's not the only mar- – I mean, I don't do paid marketing, but I do go on shows like yours. Right. I go on a, a show, um, The Study of Antiquity and History, uh, with my friend Nick. Uh, and so he does um, – basically, like, my audience is kind of like me. Mm-hmm. Um, they're probably Gen X professionals. Okay. Okay? Makes but sense. I want to get my – you know, I would love – I would love, like, a – Someone who just graduated college and has some disposable income to like subscribe for eight dollars a month, okay? Right. And because like I, I know maybe they don't want to be subscribed for seventy five, but you know check it out for eight dollars a month. And there are people who subscribe and unsubscribe multiple times. <laughs> I should probably shouldn't say that, but well, it makes sense, right? Sometimes they it's have rational. The money. Yeah, Sometimes but I, I mean, um, in any case, uh, so 
I want I want to get out there to the Zoomers. That's why I do YouTube with Nick. That's why I'm doing this with you. I mean, I don't know how what your yeah Zoomer millennial yeah. It, lot... It's like in all things, the audience is like you basically yeah. with some yeah. distribution, of course. Yeah. So I'm, I'm your I'm your I'm your pathway to the millennials. Yeah, yeah. And so then I got so I you know I go on Nick's show. Sometimes I go on. Um, I, I don't think I get too many subscriptions because of just financial issues. But I go on Indian shows. Yeah. Because uh, I'm big in India. Yeah, Substack needs to introduce um, like, like gamers uh, per- parody uh, per- exactly. purchase parody, right? Exactly. So yeah. I I do forward my pieces to Indians who ask repeatedly um, because they can't afford it. Sure. So whatever. Right. Um, okay. So you just basically go on podcasts and YouTube when you're invited on things, and then you just when you publish a new edition, you just share the link to Twitter. Yes. Do you do like systematic things where you like share it five times of that week or you'll share clips or quotes or like anything systematic? I have started to do the clips and the quotes. Not clips. I don't like I don't don't promote my podcast Mm -hmm. too much. I let that go organic. But when it comes to my pieces, I do promote them pretty heavily. I'll pin them. I'll do like a screenshot. I've started doing that. Yeah. And so today, like, so I put out something free last week. So I put out mix of free and paid stuff. Mm-hmm. I put out something free about recent human evolution fossils discovered. And I tweeted it out like crazy. And then I tweeted it out again this morning. And, you know, it's, it's not quite my number one piece is, it's called, uh, uh, having like an IQ about IQ is about intelligence. Okay. That one has like a long tail. Like people keep rereading it and I can see who's reading it. You know, <laughs> they go back. Um, they bookmarked it. But this one is like my number number two piece now. And, you know, it's free and I promoted it. It got extensively retweeted and I did that again. I don't use Facebook too much. I know there are some Facebook shares, but I think Facebook's more for boomers. Yeah, Facebook sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's a boomer it's a boomer platform and they boomer boomers who are interested in my stuff, they subscribe to the newsletter. And yeah. they get the email. Right. That's how they do it. So Substack shows you which of your subscribers look at which piece and when, like how many times. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Well, I mean, I could just make an account and find out, but I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. I mean, everyone has that. I, I can see, I can see like all sorts of, like, that's pretty have you opened yeah. it? When did you open it? Did you use the web? Yeah. You know? And so, um, there, yeah, there. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there was somebody who said one thing is, so I, I will tell you this. Um, my my stuff is mostly gated. That's text. I have seen and heard people on podcasts and also on Twitter say things that are clearly from what I wrote. Yeah. But since it's not public, how would people know? It's fine. I don't know, actually mind that. Right. Like they're paying for it. Dude, I've been noticing this all over. This has become, for some reason, very salient in my mind recently, how much people like to steal ideas without citing people. Yeah. It's happened to me a couple times. I've been listening to podcasts where I've heard someone kind of steal almost language out of my mouth. Yes. And it's like, dude, it's not that hard to just throw me a bone. Say my name. Say say you got that from Justin Murphy. Like, it would make <laughs> me feel so good. I'd really appreciate it, you know? Like, why not? But there's a really bad habit nowadays. It's like, I mean, you come up through academia, so you know with me, like, it's just what you do. Like if you if you get something interesting or sure. valuable from someone else, you just cite them. It's just there's no there's no downside. Yeah. It actually makes you seem generous and, and erudite. Yeah. That you can cite other people's names, you can share where you got it from is often it's a plus, right? Because yeah. you're you're giving more information to your audience, you're you're sending them to valuable resources, and you're being a good person and you're showing off your erudition. It's a win win for everyone. And I'm stunned recently. It's be, it's become like so obvious to me uh, how how often people do this on the internet, on Twitter, on podcasts. People don't like to just give people the favorable mention, even though you're using their ideas. Why, why do you think people don't do that? Um, I think some of them didn't come through academia where the citation is almost second nature. So they uh, think they're, they think they're like, uh, you know, getting one over. 
you know. You know, it's like it's like people who are like telling a story where it's someone else's story, but they just repurpose it. You know, so I think that's that's part of it. So sometimes it's laziness, um, and also like they want to seem. So I don't know about you, I've never plagiarized. No, but uh, there this are people, might be an academic but, thing. Like but there we are people, would never. There right? are people who habitually do it. Yeah. in the media. Oh, in in writing too. Yeah, you mean? They, yeah, they just yeah. get caught, and it's just like, and like I've been writing for well, I've been writing for nineteen years now. Right. I can tell you for a fact, I have never plagiarized of course you know i mean i think that's another one of the positive externalities of, ac- of the academic culture is yeah. like just never you would never ever yeah so i don't know it's just i just i don't have that reflex i don't think right. we have the reflex whatever i guess it is. that's true i guess that basically is the answer that if you don't come up through academia you're naturally more liberal about that kind of thing and i mean to be fair you know there's a lot of these ideas and norms out yeah. there great artists steal people like to say this kind of thing and it is and it is true i mean we do live in this kind of uh crazy cosmopolitan world of, of freely floating information and uh, you know it is to, to a degree it's fair but i think the my little like value out here is just like i want to communicate to people how it's win-win for everyone yeah. including you like yeah. you actually come off better you show off how much you've read and you build relationships by citing people and what a lot of people don't realize is that actually that web of citations is actually how how influence works um in, in a way in, in a way that benefits the citer as much as the cited yeah and so it's like if we have this culture where no one wants to just give credit to other people where they picked up a good idea from, the actual result is it's kind of a race to the bottom. It's like no yeah. one is able to build a web. No, it's a tragedy of no, the comments. Yeah, no one's, be, no one's able to build a web of influence because no one's willing to give it to the others. And yeah. so it's actually shooting yourself in the foot in a way because that means everyone's atomized floating on these different chaotic yeah. islands. And I actually think you know one, one longer-term thesis would be that this is one of my one of my great interests at the moment is just thinking about what the future of the intellectual life looks like given this kind of uh, just digital chaos of, yeah. of everything being reshuffled and and power structures of intellectual influence being totally uh, revolutionized as as we speak. Like, how does that shake out in the long run? And I think one interesting hypothesis is that the what actually maintains long term influence is going to be those individuals and groups that are actually able to reconstitute webs of citation, more or less. Yeah, uh, because that is ultimately the that is ultimately the the structure or the foundation upon which like future generations look to see what is worthy of attention. Yeah. And so in a way, if you don't participate in some kind of web like that, you might be exiting the meme pool sooner than sure. you think. Is my well, pick. so uh, I'll give you one story. Um, I think journalists, I don't know why, but I think journalists do this a lot more than academics. Um, I have a friend, we're still friends. Uh, I don't have a problem with this, but he asked me many years ago, this is almost, was over 10 years ago, um, what do you think would be a good idea for a column? And so I sent him a paragraph and he just used it. <laughs> I just read it. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. And yeah. I know other people do that too. They just ask people, what do you think would be a good idea for you? And then they just use it. Right. And I'm like, ah. That's weird. I think that's weird. Right. It's but one it's thing common to, in journalism. It's one thing to take idea, like the, the idea, but not the text, right? Like, yeah, well, I mean, I think he changed some of it, but it was the structure was my paragraph in terms of it, it was basically, right. you know, and so. But you do ask friends for their input and then you'll like leverage it, right? Yeah. Like I called you up when I was doing the arranged marriage agency that we, we started. Yeah. I asked, I just called you up and I was like, 
hey, just what do you in your view? What are the what are the major predictors? You know, yeah. and like I use that. In, I asked a few other people, and I synthesized, yeah, yeah. and I synthesized that. Maybe I didn't like cite your name somewhere. No, but there that's was nothing fine. Specific yeah, I, to cite. No, to me that's like fair play. Yeah. The the not fair play is like lifting actual words. Yeah. Basically. Well, you know, I did joke that it, of course, like it would be like a white guy who culturally appropriates our culture, uh, <laughs> tries to monetize it. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, we'll see. We'll see if it's possible to recreate that in the in the Western world. But I'm still optimistic. I think we'll I think we'll get one sometime. What well, with the way the dating scene is today, yeah, that's fundamentally your. What's the competition? It's not looking great in terms of like their. So it's there. like you know yeah. this is this is the value proposition here. Yeah. Well, we'll see what comes of that. But I shouldn't be plugging my own work on on this podcast, which is all about you, Razib. Thank you for this. This is awesome, man. We covered yeah. a lot of ground. This is fire. Well, I'll see you around, bro. Yeah, dude. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate right. it. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show, and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening, and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.